Well, good morning, church. It's good to be together this morning. If you've got your Bibles with you uh, or your favorite Bible app, go ahead and open up to John chapter four. Uh, That's where we're gonna be camping out. If you're new to scripture this morning, uh, if this is your first time here, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, The book of John is kind of towards the back quarter of the Bible at the beginning of the New Testament. uh, And we're gonna be in the fourth chapter there. Uh, While you're turning, if you don't know who I am, my name is Quentin Bemis. I'm one of the pastors on staff with Sherwood Oaks, and I love what I get to do. Uh, I get to spend most of my days uh, working with our production and our worship teams to help oversee uh, the worship experiences here on Sundays and our special events, and I just, I love our teams. I love what we get to do in the heart that they pour into it. Uh, I'm especially thankful for Joe and Shelby who led us in worship this morning. As many of you know, Shelby was my intern last summer. She worked with our teams here and Joe's going to be spending his summer with us interning. So if you see him around uh, more this summer, which he's a townie, he's from here. Uh, You may know the Dernal family, but just make him feel welcome uh, and give him uh, a good hard time if you get the chance. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so this morning's topic, if you've been following along in Core 52, uh, you may have noticed that this week's week's chapter is called Worship. So why not give it to the worship guy, right? Uh, Because, you know, the easy assumption may be that if we're talking about worship is that we must be talking about music or how or why we do certain things at Sherwood Oaks and the way that we approach worship and proper theology and all that stuff. And maybe you're hoping uh, that I might actually talk about some of that stuff. Maybe you're hoping today that there's a part of worship that you really like and you really want me to talk about it and affirm that thing. Or maybe there's a part of what we do that you really don't like and you would really love for me to talk about that and why we do that. Uh, And we might do that a little bit today, but I don't think that's the heart of what our text this morning is trying to get at. And you see, worship oftentimes becomes a really kind of dicey topic uh, for some people to talk about in church because so much of it gets wrapped up in identity and and preference and all this stuff. Uh, But here's the thing. I really do believe that we were created uh, in God's image as worshiping beings. We were created to worship. And all of us have ways and liturgies and orders and forms uh, that we orient our lives around to worship God in, all of them unique. But somewhere along the way, all the time, uh, throughout all of, this is nothing new to today, all throughout church history, humans have made worship more about us than about God. We've gotten more into this rhythm of trying to make worship something that makes us feel good and we want to know how it makes us feel and what we get out of it, not what God gets from it. And I've been leading worship for about 18 years total, and today actually marks my ninth year in full-time vocational ministry. And in that time, I've, I've heard a little bit of it all uh, when it comes to talking about worship and Sunday experiences. You know, everybody's got different opinions and says, you know, well, this is too loud, this is too soft, this is not loud enough, this is uh, not soft enough, this is not enough hymns, this is too many new songs, this is not enough new songs, we want more of this, more of that, whatever, it's too hot in here, it's too cold in here. And maybe you've been waiting, maybe you've been coming to church waiting for some Broadway show tunes, maybe specifically something from Hamilton might fit your bill a little bit. Shot. We're not throwing away our shot. It's just like I'm country, but young, happy, hungry. We're not throwing away our shot. I mean, that would lead me in worship. I don't know. I don't know about anybody else. If. If you were here last week, if you weren't, go back and watch like the first five minutes of Sean's sermon. Uh, you know, so Sean played a little uh, prank on me, so I just, I had to get him back. But the really sweet part uh, that most of you down here can't see and don't know about this is that little bit of revenge actually involved his wife because his wife was the one serving on production this morning who hit play on that video. So thanks, Amber. <laughs> 
Uh, traitor. Uh, <clears throat> they'll, they'll be talking about that later. Uh, anyway, so let's get back to talking about Jesus now. But all of us, we, we have our ways and our norms that we're used to when it comes to worship and our preconceived notions that we bring into our times together. But let's dig into scripture together. Let's set aside Hamilton and all that fun stuff. Let's look at John chapter four, verse 24. This is our core verse for the week. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, isolated from the rest of the story, this verse alone gives us a lot to chew on and we can ask a lot of questions of this verse. Like, who is God? What is spirit? What is truth? What is worship? Uh, and how does, you know, how does that look like today? You know, and if we look at this passage in the context that it's in, uh, we're gonna get a much more fuller picture. So we're gonna start narrow and then we're gonna go wide and then we're gonna come right back to this verse today. Uh, so let's start with just this real simple question first. What is worship? Now when I ask that, immediately your mind will probably start to fill in blanks as we've said, but no, it is not simply just this religious word that is tied to our time here on Sunday morning or the time specifically of singing songs or anything like that. The Greek word used here is this word proskuneo, which has a few different translations, but one that might jump out as sounding very similar is this word prostrate, which simply means like laying flat on the ground, like getting down on your knees really low, like flat on your face, like this act of bowing in reverence, this deep expression of adoration. Now for Jesus and for Jewish culture, like they would have understand this word proskuneo as this whole body experience of worship, deeply rooted in adoration of God. And it wasn't explicitly tied to worship, like it, or sorry, it wasn't explicitly tied to music or like time at church or singing or even like going physically to church. It was this posture, this prostrate posture of heart, mind, and body. Another definition of the word would be like to kiss hands towards someone, which would be, you know, if you've seen like movies, like somebody bowing and kissing, you know, like the ring of a king or royalty or something like that out of respect. Now, don't worry, we're not going to start kissing each other's hands. That's not on the docket for today. I mean, if you want to, that's, that's up to you and your neighbor. Uh, and rarely, rarely here do we see people falling like flat on their face in worship necessarily. But you think about our times where we are gathered together. Like you see people responding through singing, through raising hands, through moving your bodies, through bowing your heads and praying. Uh, it's, it's all worship. It's all these different aspects and expressions of this word proskuneo when we're gathered. And now if you look back at the Old Testament, we don't have time to go into all this, but the Hebrews actually had several words that would, if you, if you read the words worship or praise in the Old Testament, there's several different words that were translated to our English words of praise and worship that all encompass these different aspects of worship that encompass this holistic approach to them showing adoration and reverence for God. So now let's, let's we kind of talked about worship, let's step back a little bit. Let's look at this whole story in John chapter four. So quick summary uh, to get where we are in our verse, Jesus was taking a break from traveling on his way to Galilee. He had stopped at this well in Samaria and the Samaritan woman comes to draw water from the well and Jesus engages her in conversation. And now that alone is worth a whole sermon in itself. Jesus talking, a Jewish religious leader, he was a rabbi talking to a Samaritan woman. That was like big no-nos in that time and like the Jews and Samaritans did not get along at all. But through this conversation, Jesus leads this woman to a new way of living, very graciously showing her all the things that she's elevated above God in her life. 
Now, there's a moment where Jesus kind of calls her out uh, for this promiscuous lifestyle that she's been leading. And you can read about that in verse 16 and 18. And then right after that, she kind of shifts the conversation, probably not necessarily because Jesus was coming at her really hard, but because any of us, even if somebody says it in the most gracious way, you call somebody out, you get a little bit uncomfortable and you just, you kind of want to like change the conversation. So that's what she does here. She asks about worship. And so Jesus doesn't let it get too far away. He very gently pulls it right back to talk about the heart of the issue. So let's jump in, uh, starting in verse 19 in chapter 4 here. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Because he's just, you know, called out all these things. Uh, Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied. Now, real quick, uh, this... This woman word right here, you know, we may want to insert a lot of like angst and like woman, that's not Jesus' posture. In his language, this actually was a term of endearment. So Jesus was leveling with her and bringing, drawing her close, not, not casting judgment, but just pulling her in to show her a better way. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the Samaritan woman ask the same question that many of us would ask today in these moments about worship. What's the right way to worship? Where should I worship? How should I worship? For us, what songs should I sing? How should we sing the songs? You know, and she asked this probably to, uncom- to shift that discomfort away from her personal life to something a little not so personal. Uh, but Jesus very gently pulls this back and gives her an answer that is so good because it both answers her question and helps her see something new. It's these two, this twofold response. It dismantles her perception that worship is confined to a place or a time. And second, his response unveils a brand new way to approach a life of worship to God through spirit and truth. Now, what in the world does that mean? So to understand these words, we're going to trace some of their origin through the biblical narrative. So I hope you packed your lunch today because we're gonna be here a little bit taking you know just a whole scope through the Bible. I'm kidding, don't shift uncomfortably, relax. But I do encourage you to dig deeper on your own. We are going to do a little, a brief survey, but I encourage you to dig deeper on your own into these words and these biblical themes. And there's a great resource that just came out. If any of you have followed uh, the Bible Project before, uh, they're a nonprofit group that does a lot of Bible study tools and resources. And they recently launched a, a smartphone app called the Bible Project app. Uh, but it's got podcasts and articles, and they've organized a lot of their teachings and readings in a way that help draw out these biblical themes and these narratives throughout all of Scripture. Just so rich and so good. So shameless plug, Bible Project app. Trust me, it's great. Uh, okay, so let's start with the word spirit. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. Say that with me. Ruach. I don't, you didn't growl loud enough. Ruach. If you're not spitting on the people in front of you, you're not saying it right. Now, in the New Testament, which was written in Greek, uh, the same word for spirit was pneuma, and both of these words share uh, a lot of similar meanings. So we're going to look at the word ruach. Anytime in the Old Testament you would see the word air, breath, wind, or spirit, likely it was this word ruach. As scholars have kind of summarized it today, this word was what the Hebrews used to describe God's animating and his empowering presence. 
God's animating and empowering presence. And the first time this ruach shows up is right at the beginning of the whole story. Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God, the ruach, was hovering over the face of the waters. Right here in the beginning, God's presence was here at the beginning of creation, beginning to animate, to create life out of nothing, to bring order out of chaos. And then if you were to read, continue to read through the whole Old Testament and know instances of God's spirit showing up or wind blowing or air moving or anything like that, often these were calls and reminders for the Israelite people in this story to remember that God's presence is active in the world. His spirit is right there amongst us, continuing to work in creation to recreate what at the time had already become a fallen creation. You know, and there are stories all through the Old Testament of God's spirit coming on a powerful way onto certain people and empowering them in moments. You think of like the story of Samson. You think of uh, the story of all these artisans and craftsmen who were called to build the tabernacle, which we're going to talk about in a second. And all these uh, different singers and musicians that talks about God's spirit coming upon them or they were filled with the spirit. That's God's presence animating, empowering, giving life. And so that word, the tabernacle uh, simply means the tent of meeting. And for the, uh, for the Hebrews, for the Israelites, because of sin and that separation that they had experienced from the fall, they couldn't live in full and total unity with God because he's holy, we're not. There were these rituals and practices that the Israelites had to go through to remain in God's presence. So they built this tabernacle. God laid out this roadmap for them to go through to come into his presence and to build a place for God's full manifest presence to abide. It was said to rest in this, behind this curtain in this tent in this place called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, which is a big uh, religious symbol item for them, uh, dwelled. Now, if you fast forward to the New Testament, the Spirit takes on new life because at Jesus' death, as we just talked about at Easter a couple weeks ago, Matthew records that the curtain in the temple that was separating the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. This is where God's presence, his spirit was said to dwell, and it was torn from top to bottom, and out comes the spirit of God to the people. And after Easter, when Jesus ascended to heaven and left his followers, he said these words in the book of Acts. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So now Jesus is saying here, what we would go on to read in the book of Acts is that there is no longer a need for a temple because we have become the temple. We have become the dwelling place of God's manifest presence. His ruach now lives inside of us. It is available to us in dwelling. All those moments in the Old Testament of God's spirit empowering people, we have access to that empowering presence because of Jesus. The same ruach that was at work in Genesis 1 in creation is now residing and living inside of us at work recreating, or as we say here, transforming us and the world around us. So now for the other big word in our core verse, truth. Now this is a bit of a dicey word for most of our culture, this big scary word that no one likes, truth. Most of society would probably define truth this way, relative. 
My truth is my truth, this is my perspective, and that's okay. And your truth is your truth, and this is okay. And there can be different truths, and they can be contrasting, and that's, that's okay. That's how culture would define truth. I love the simplicity of John Mark Comer's definition. He's a, a pastor and an author from Portland, and he wrote a book called Live No Lies. His definition for truth is simply reality. What is real? And if you've been around church for any length of time, you may have also heard us say that like the Bible, the word of God, that we believe this is truth. But why do we believe that? Why do we associate truth with these 2,000 year old scriptures? Do we simply believe what the Bible says because that's what we've been taught forever and because the Bible tells me so? I think there's a little bit more to it than that and this becomes reality for a different reason. It's not just because the Bible says so. So a little bit of quick apologetics here, which is apologetics is a fancy word for like understanding why we believe what we believe. So the Bible is a collection of 66 different unique books written by over 35 different authors uh, in over half a dozen literary genres, cataloged into two larger collections, Old Testament, New Testament. These all tell one unified story of God, humanity, Jesus, and his kingdom. Now, the Old Testament was held as scripture by the Jewish people before Jesus came into the picture. That's been, that was their word of God, their perspective into God was the Old Testament. The New Testament was all written by either eyewitnesses of Jesus or eyewitnesses to the eyewitnesses of Jesus. The historical accuracy of the Bible and the writings that are meant to be historical documents within it have been upheld by biblical scholars and secular historians for centuries as accurate. There are more original copies or copies of the original copies available to us of the biblical scrolls than any other document in history. That's why we believe this, because this is upheld as truth, not just because the Bible says so, because these were real accounts of real stories. It's not just fairy tales. Yes, there are poems and parables and things like that and stories that were meant to be taken as fairy tales, but even those poetic moments still tell the same story of Jesus. And so we can take this as truth while we call home because it's our reality. And now here, here that gets even richer. In the book of John, the very beginning, a few weeks ago, uh, we started the, uh, our Core 52 journey through the book of John. And the first verse in that says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then you jump to our core verse from Easter right here. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God's word, his truth, became flesh in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Jesus is our truth. He says so to his disciples later in the book of John chapter 14, when they're all gathered for the Passover meal and they begin to question Jesus about these cryptic warnings that he's giving and all this stuff he's saying, they're like, Yo, what's, what are you talking about? Preparing the way to the Father's house, all this stuff. Uh, he responds with these words. If you've been here before, help me finish it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is truth. Jesus is our reality. So now we circle all the way back to John 4. See, that, that journey didn't take so long. So here we are, John 4, core verse for the week. Let's read this, these words again with fresh eyes. Read it with me. 
God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. True worship takes place when we embrace the empowering presence of God, his ruach that is at work in transformation, in recreation work, founded on the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Let me say that again. True worship takes place when we embrace God's empowering presence at work in recreation, founded on the truth of Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. Now these words spoken to this Samaritan woman were meant to point her towards a new way of living, to gently nudge her away from the sinful lifestyle she had and push her into something better, a life filled with spirit and truth. It wasn't about which place is the best to worship, what's the best way to worship, what's the best song to sing. It was about a life that seeks after the heart of Jesus and his way, following him, becoming more like him every day, letting every aspect of our life be transformed, leaving behind our sinful ways, as Jesus had just challenged this woman live. So how do we live that out today? How do we worship in spirit and truth? So I believe that God's also given us this answer found in scripture throughout the whole narrative and it is through the rhythms of the church, Big C Church. Now hear me out. I know that may seem a little simplistic to say that an application point for a sermon on worship is church. But there's, there's two aspects to the church that we need to talk about and I, I think this is so rich. We have the church that is gathered up, like what's happening in here, and we have the church that is scattered out, what happens the other times when we're not in here or we're not in Bible studies. And both are essential to a life of worship. And we don't often talk about why we do church on Sunday, but I think it's important in this context to talk about it. The gathered church is a vital part of discipleship to Jesus. Scripture upholds this. Church tradition for 2,000 years upholds this. Discipleship to the way of Jesus does not happen in isolation. It happens in community. And the chosen institution by God for that community is his church. Full stop. God ordained the church to rule and reign in partnership with him from the beginning of creation to eternity. And to negate the need for a gathered, localized church community in your life is to arrogantly tell God that you know better and you have a better way of living. And that's, that's hard for God to hear when we want to toss aside his loving way to bring us back to him. But listen, it's so easy today in our world to just to turn on a podcast, to turn on a live stream of our favorite preacher, latest, greatest celebrity pastor, to listen to that, sort of listen to it while we're going about our life, doing dishes, other things, to glean a few nuggets of truth, and maybe even sit down and read our Bible for 10 minutes every day. But to do that detached from a church community is not discipleship. That's not what Jesus called us to, and that's not the type of worship he wants. You see, committing to the gathered rhythms of a local church is so countercultural today because it forces us to say no to things the world calls us to in order to orient our lives around something greater. Committing to the rhythms of the local church slowly rewires our brains and forms our minds and our habits around the ways of Jesus. Committing to the rhythms of the local church in gathered corporate worship where we sing, we pray, we read scripture together, we fellowship with one another, which is this fancy word for just hanging out together. They unify us 
as a church. And unity is something this world desperately needs right now in this age where division among politics and personal preferences and all these different definitions of truth that you have, the world needs to see something united. And as an aside, I think that is probably why music has survived for so long as the primary vehicle for gathered worship. Because think about this, when we sing songs together, when we, when we choose to sing the same lyrics, we are breathing in the same phrases together, singing them out, breathing out, all as one body. This is literally like a picture of a body breathing in and out together. You talk about power in that image of a united presence together for Jesus. And I think the world needs that. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we have the scattered church life, which is those times when we're not all in this room together, when we're not huddled up in Bible studies in our home. Uh, you know, this is the times where we're working and we're doing other things, we're going about our daily lives. But these are still moments where we are part of the church. And at Sherwood, we have said that this is where we want Christ's influence to play out in us wherever we live, we work, and we play. And this type of worship doesn't involve singing may not involve praying out loud, and it probably doesn't involve reading scripture. But this is some of the most powerful moments of worship that we can offer back to God, is a life that is committed to living the ways of Jesus in every space, where our spirituality isn't compartmentalized to a Sunday. Being a witness to the world through our actions to those who don't know Jesus. Paul says it this way in his letter to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 12, very beginning, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. True worship. True worship that Jesus calls us to. Partners with God's spirit in the work of recreation is founded on the truth of Jesus and is made manifest in the life of the church. True worship partners with God's spirit founded on the truth of Jesus, making itself manifest in the life and rhythms of the church. And our response to this today needs to be to embrace those rhythms. And if you call Sherwood home, that's embracing the rhythms that we've chosen as our church so there's two sides to the challenge today. Maybe you're really good at showing up to church on Sunday. You're really good at filling your church calendar with activities. You've, you've got your life group, your Bible studies. You, you attend these extra things. You go to these conferences. You, know, you, you fill your calendar with these gathered church activities. And it could be out of a place of endearment for God, like you really just want to be close to God all the time. Or it could be out of a place uh, to, to escape the world or to escape some of your problems. I don't know, that's, that's between you and God. But my question for you is, how are you worshiping God with your life outside of this church? Because we can't live on the mountaintop. We can't live in this moment all the time. We have to come down. So how are you living the ways of Jesus in every space? Do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as one sent by the church, empowered by the spirit to live in Jesus' truth in every space? Your prayer today needs to be one of surrendering your desire to be at church all the time and for God to open your eyes to see how the spirit wants to work in other spaces. So maybe today, the other challenge is maybe you're here and this is the one Sunday a month that you've decided to check off your religious box of church attendance. You know, you fill your time with other things and all, again, all of them are probably, you know, good things that 
could be family needs, sports activities for the kids, friends, uh, you know, sleep. And maybe even you see God moving in all those spaces and you're really intentional with bringing God's presence into these other spaces. That's great. But if you're negating the power of the gathered church, the challenge for Jesus today for you is to reorient your calendar to the rhythms of the gathered church and watch what God wants to do with that. Now, if you're, you know, joining online and you live in Bloomington or nearby and you've been joining online for weeks because it's easier and convenient and you can, you can do it from home, I, w- I want to challenge you to change this perspective. Now, before we get too far here, please understand there's a whole umbrella of grace with this topic because of the COVID world that we live in, because of shut-ins, sickness, physical needs. There is a need for online church for the people who can't physically be here in the room or for safety reasons choose not to. And totally get that. I'm not addressing that. What I'm addressing is the folks today who maybe are joining out of convenience and only you can reflect on that. So the honest challenge from Jesus today to you may be, are you joining online and are you staying behind a screen out of necessity or out of convenience? And I can't answer that for you. That is between you and Jesus. So my prayer is that you would wrestle that out today. Now, college students, wherever you're at, listen up. (laughs) (laughs) This is the end of your semester and many of you are graduating, moving on to other things. Congratulations, that's a big deal. Or maybe you're just heading home for the summer uh, and this is the last Sunday we're going to see you for like four months. And the temptation is going to be if you're just home for the summer is that you've got a four-month vacation and you can just turn it all off and not worry about school, work, anything, or church. You're like, I'm home for the summer. I'm not really going to have time to get into the rhythm or that. Man, don't buy into that. I believe that's a lie. And I believe Jesus wants to do something in those four months that you've got wherever you've scurried off to. Press in to your church at home in those times. And if you're graduating and we're not gonna see you again and you're being sent off to wherever God has called you, my challenge to you is this. Instead of making your first priorities, all these things with your new job and settling in, you need to do those. But make one of your top priorities on your list of things to do when you get to a new community, engage with the life of a local church. Watch what God would do if you would make that a priority. If we are living every day as the church Jesus has called us to be, partnering with God's empowering presence to bring transformation to all of creation, living the truth as revealed by Jesus and his scriptures, both in moments gathered and moments scattered, there would be no song that we could sing that would declare louder praise to the King of heaven. Let's stand and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your words contained in here and these scriptures that that bring life to us, that bring healing. God, I pray today that we would walk away with a truer understanding of the life of worship that you have called us to, one that is not confined to Sunday morning and one that does not negate the power of this church gathered together, but one that holistically approaches all of our bodies and minds and souls being engaged in the life that you have called us to. So help us as we reflect on that, as we surrender our desires, our preferences, our ways to you, God. We just, we lift this time in your name. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.